Main results of the British Antarctic expedition of 1907 under my command are as follows. We reached the point within 97 geographical miles of the South Pole. The only thing that stops us from reaching the actual point was the lack of 50 pounds of food. Another party reached for the first time. 50 pounds of food. In Ernest Shackleton's mind, it was 50 pounds of food that kept him and his team from a lifelong goal to reach the South Pole during their expedition in 1908. Well, 50 pounds of food and 97 miles. When you're traveling through Antarctica, where temperatures can plummet to negative 100 degree Fahrenheit, it might not surprise you that food matters quite a bit. You are essentially walking or sledding through a desert. No plants to forage, few animals to hunt, apart from the occasional seal or penguin. If you want to survive a trip down to the southernmost tip of the world, you'd better bring a sandwich. Or 50. And the bed was jammed with its bow in the crevasse. We rushed back You're listening to The Feast, a podcast where meals make history. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. And today, we're focusing on food and a little drink at the very ends of the Earth. What to bring with you when you're journeying to the South Pole in the 1910s? How to make that food and drink last? And of course, what happens when you don't bring enough. Ernest Shackleton is perhaps one of the most famous British explorers of what's often known as the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, a period defined as the first few years of the 20th century. By the late 1890s or even early 1900s, Antarctica was the last great unexplored region of the world. Think of it. We had cross-country railroads, telephones, transatlantic telegrams. But a whole continent was just sitting there, lying down at the South Pole, almost completely untouched by humans. And to some, particularly to some hardy British and Norwegian types, the allure of exploring the last unknown part of Earth Well, it was just a little too great. So, from the tail end of the 19th century to the early 1920s, over 17 expeditions were launched by 10 different countries to the South Pole. Back in August 1895, the 6th International Geographical Congress held in London passed a general resolution It called on scientific societies throughout the world to promote the cause of Antarctic exploration, quote, in whatever ways seem to them most effective. Essentially, the race to the South Pole was on. Today, Ernest Shackleton has a bit of a hero's aura surrounding him. 
and can be subject to just the teeniest amount of hyperbole. When describing Shackleton, fellow explorer the Norwegian Roald Amundsen said, Sir Ernest Shackleton's name will always be written in the annals of Antarctic exploration in letters of fire. I'm just going to say that one more time. Letters of fire. Now, I know plenty of Shackleton fans out there who will argue that his accolades are more than deserved. And hey, I'm not one to argue. Shackleton in total led three expeditions to Antarctica. And his second expedition, often known as the Endurance Expedition, is by far the most famous. And here's the kicker. It wasn't even an expedition to reach the South Pole. But hey, it's not every day that you successfully keep 28 men alive for a year on Antarctica, take a casual sea voyage of 720 miles in stormy open oceans just to get back to solid land and civilization. Oh, and also not lose a single person while doing it. Just looking at the Endurance Expedition alone, South Pole or no South Pole, that feat does tend to earn you some respect. But that famous expedition, which took place in 1914 to roughly 1917, well, that's interestingly not what we're talking about today. Today, we're going back to 1907, when Shackleton was still preparing to lead his first expedition to Antarctica. Now, in 1907, that prize of being the first to the South Pole was still all for the taking. And, heaven help him, Shackleton wanted to be the man to get there first. Now, even though the 1907 expedition was perhaps Shackleton's first time leading an expedition, he was certainly not unaware of the dangers of exploring or simply being in Antarctica. He had cut his teeth on South Pole adventuring under another famous British explorer, Robert Scott. Scott had led a team down to Antarctica back in 1901, with a young Ernest Shackleton tagging along as a junior officer. Fast forward six years, and by 1907, now it was Shackleton's turn to lead an expedition, with the lofty goal of getting to that South Pole prize. Shackleton's voyage was known as the British Antarctic Expedition, but is often more but is more often known as the Nimrod Expedition, which was the name of the ship that carried Shackleton and his men south. Shackleton's goals were by all accounts lofty. Playing heavily on his established Antarctic experience with Scott in 1901, fueled as well by Shackleton's notorious charisma, Shackleton was able to get his 1907 expedition entirely funded from private donations. Using these funds, Shackleton could hire a crew, buy the Nimrod, his ship, and of course outfit his expedition with supplies as well as food, because this was no short-term get-to-the-South-Pole-and-get-back-as-quick-as-you-can type expedition. This mission was planned for upwards of two years. That meant he and his team would hang out for around two years, give or take, in the coldest part of the world. So, let's imagine for a minute, you're heading to Antarctica. On a good day, you might be able to enjoy temperatures of the high 20s and low 30s. On a good day, maybe in summer. 
In winter, you're looking at, as I mentioned, negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's not even including the winds. This is, of course, again, 1907. You'll have no electricity down there, no GPS, you'll have to build all your own accommodation, and there won't be any plants and very few animals to hunt. How precisely do you plan for a trip like that? More particularly, how do you plan for food on a trip like that? Now, Shackleton would later write a book detailing the Nimrod expedition called The Heart of the Antarctic, being the story of the British Antarctic Expedition, 1907 to 1909. Now, in the book, Shackleton says, in the first place, the food must be wholesome and nourishing in the highest degree possible. During Shackleton's discovery days with Scott, most of the men, including Shackleton himself, had become seriously ill over the course of the journey. More often than not, from scurvy. Yeah, that disease that pirates and sailors had suffered from back in Pirates of the Caribbean era. Yeah, still plaguing British explorers even in the 1910s. Even, or maybe the right word is, especially down in Antarctica. So, top tip. When packing for an Antarctic expedition, remember that you will be carrying everything with you in one way or another. Maybe you'll be hauling this on your back. Maybe you'll be pulling along on a sledge. If the Shackleton experiences teach us anything, it's that you cannot rely on sled dogs or even ponies to carry your supplies with you. So as you're trekking through those negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit, remember that you'll be taking all of your food in some way, shape, or form with you. So because you'll be carrying everything, maybe you don't want to bring the heaviest canned goods around. To make sure his men survive, and would also be able to simply carry the food that they had brought with them, Shackleton had to order whatever would offer the densest amount of calories for the littlest comparative amount of weight. Oh, and then there's one more thing. Remember, you also occasionally have to cook your food in, let's just say it again, negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Getting a fire going isn't going to be as easy as walking around and collecting some stray firewood. Anything you cook is going to need fuel. Fuel you are also going to have to carry. Fuel you might need to later rely on to keep warm, and let's be honest, alive. So what exactly is an early 20th century Antarctic explorer to pack? In Shackleton's book, The Heart of the Antarctic, he actually includes the entire packing list of food. There are certainly a number of items you would expect an explorer to include on a multi-year journey, such as 6,700 pounds, give or take, of wheat flour, 6,000 pounds of various tinned meats, mmm, spam, 3,400 pounds of assorted tinned soups, surely to keep you warm over those very long and dark and cold Antarctic nights, 500 pounds of sugar, and 1,400 pounds of, interestingly they specify here, Danish butter. 
flour, meat, soup, sugar, and butter doesn't sound all that strange for a multi-year expedition where you really can rely on no grocery stores, supermarkets, or really any resources in the area to which you're traveling. But the list does go on, and there are some, let's say, surprising inclusions that speak to, well, to put a fine point on it, the utter sheer Britishness of Shackleton. Items like 500 pounds of Roundtree's Elect Cocoa, 1,000 pounds of specifically cheddar cheese, and my personal favorite, 120 pounds of plum pudding. On Shackleton's list, there's also an interesting variety of items that might not be known to a 21st century reader that fall under the category of plasmon. You'll see them on the list as plasmon powder, plasmon cocoa, and, um, beef plasmon. Now, unless you grew up in mid-19th century England, and hey, maybe you did, you might not be familiar with this term. And given the name, plasmon, you would be forgiven for thinking it was some sort of chemistry-related experimental food. And well, in a way, it was. Plasmin was essentially an early form of, of all things, powdered milk. Specifically, powdered skimmed milk. Now, I know we live in an age of a multitude of milk products, from soy to oat to full fat to organic free range 2% reduced. And skim milk has long just been one more option in the dairy case for many of us. But oftentimes we think of these products as being fairly new or modern. But actually, skim milk was available in the 1800s, certainly by the end of the century, because it was basically a byproduct of what happened when you separated milk and cream on an industrial scale to make butter. But you see, the thing was, no one really liked skim milk. It was considered, well, as I said, a byproduct, something you only accidentally ended up with when trying to make something else. No one would willingly buy it if they had any other option. In fact, during the late 19th century, skim milk often just went to pig feed or was poured down the drain because no one wanted it. But then came plasmin. Plasmin was essentially a dried version of the proteins extracted from skim milk. But this dried substance offered all of a sudden an easy way to boost the protein of any dish. Just add a dash or so of plasmin and presto, a higher protein content in your macaroni and cheese, in your beef stew, in your bouillon of all things. It is not so dissimilar to protein powder today. And nutritionists, or at least the late 19th century equivalent, were soon falling over themselves to recommend plasmin in just about everything. One ad from 1907, remember, that was the same year as Shackleton's Nimrod mission to Antarctica, shouted that, To eat is not enough. The food we eat must be the right kind of food. Plasmin is the food for the young or old, brimful of nourishment. As appealing as plasmin might have been to the late 19th century bodybuilder, Plasmon had few downsides to your average early 20th century Antarctic explorer, including Shackleton. So, you may not be surprised to learn, the Nimrod expedition packed a total of 
2,240 pounds of plasmin-enriched wheat biscuits, 12 dozen tins of beef plasmin, 6 dozen tins of plasmin powder, and another 6 dozen tins for plasmin cocoa. I like the mental image of protein powder tubs getting loaded onto the Nimrod before they set sail for Antarctica. But that's just me. Despite his generous packing of protein powder, Shackleton also chose to bring along an incredibly meager 70 pounds of coffee. Which, hey, is 70 pounds of coffee, until you realize, just for comparison's sake, the expedition brought along 350 pounds of Lipton's tea. Ah, the English. And let's just think about this. The expedition packed twice the amount of plum pudding as they did of coffee. Twice. Shackleton's fundraising had also meant that a number of famous British companies were willing to provide items for his Antarctic journey. So Shackleton and his men, huddled down in the South Pole, were able to spread Coleman's mustard on their various tinned meats. Alfred Bird and Sons, as in Bird of Bird's Custard, the English school dinner classic, well, they supplied powders for, unsurprisingly, custard and blancmange. Yes, blancmange powder. Delicious. Oxo provided meat bouillon. Evans, Sons, Lesher, and Webb gave the expedition a hearty, and scurvy-preventing, 27 cases of Montserrat lime juice. Let's take a minute to remember Shackleton's plans for the expedition as they set off in 1907. Just to refresh, 1907, no one had yet reached the South Pole. Or, for that matter, the magnetic South Pole, which often lies somewhere a thousand miles north of the actual South Pole. I was thinking that I would try to explain why this happens, but hey, this is a food history podcast. You can find science somewhere else. To even hope of reaching the pole, expeditions were usually scheduled around the warmest part of the year in the Southern Hemisphere. That is, of course, around November, December, and January. And oftentimes, this was the only way to actually reach bits, the northern bits, that is, of Antarctica. And remember, during this time, the only way to reach any part of Antarctica was, of course, by boat. Even in 1907, these boats that we're talking about were still large, essentially giant sailing ships. Wooden ones, too. These ships had to navigate the giant ice, not to mention storms, before the group set off by foot, or by sledge, or by ski, down further south. So let's say your chosen ship gets through the storms, gets through the ice, and gets your party to something resembling land. Or let's just say sure-footed ground, even if that ground was just really thick ice. When you got there, the ship then turned around and left, essentially marooning you on Antarctica. Because, like so many things, it came down to an issue of timing. By the time it would take your party to walk, or sledge, or whatever, to the South Pole, or as close as you could possibly get, well, it was likely that summer in the Southern Hemisphere would be long since past. We're talking hundreds, if not a thousand miles. Most expeditions averaged a measly 15 miles a day, maybe 20 miles a day if you were doing really well and perhaps were on skis. But you had hundreds, if not thousands, of miles to cover. And then remember, 
once you got there, you had to get back. Well, that was probably going to take you weeks, if not months, if not many, 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 many months. Well, that meant that ship that had dropped you off in the height of the summer of the Southern Hemisphere would probably be waiting through the fall and into the winter. Any ship trying to get you and your team out would be literally frozen in ice as average temperatures dropped. The strength of the ice down at Antarctica was often strong enough to destroy boats, crushing them to splinters. So the agreed-upon plan was often that ships would drop off expedition parties, leave them there for at least a year if not two, and then return hoping that someone would have survived long enough and maybe had gotten to the South Pole and back. So a boat had to drop you at some point in Antarctica, essentially say, good luck, and sail off into the northern horizon. You and your team would then be left to fend for yourselves for at least a year until the weather was warm enough for a ship to dare sailing that far south again. That essentially describes what the plan was for Shackleton and his Nimrod expedition. Their ship dropped them off in early February 1908 at a place known as Cape Royds. It was there, in February 1908, on Cape Royds, that Shackleton and his men unloaded and unpacked most of the supplies they had brought with them. There, they built a small hut where they would eat, sleep, and hang out for the next 10 months. Yeah, basically a year. Because remember what I said about needing to plan around the warmest months of the year to get to the South Pole? Well, Shackleton's party had landed in February, meaning the warmest part of summer for the Southern Hemisphere was already gone. If they wanted to make it even further south, even reach the South Pole, about 700 miles away, and remember, after they got there, they had to get back, they needed the warmest weather they could get before setting out. So that meant waiting for months on end just for the weather to get warm. In October 1909, Shackleton and his men made their attempt at the South Pole. And well, I'm sorry to say, but they didn't quite make it. To the Pole, I mean. And as Shackleton revealed at the beginning of the episode, it all came down to a question of food. Shackleton had estimated it would take between 90 to 110 days to get to the Pole and back. And so, they packed just enough food for that length of journey. But in traveling to the South Pole, every step you take to the Pole means one more step you'll have to take traveling back to camp. Which means if it takes you longer than you plan to get to the Pole, you're eating food you had saved for your return journey. A serious problem. Shackleton's team was beset by bad weather and loss of gear. All the things that could go wrong on such a journey did. That didn't mean there wasn't at least a little time for levity along the way. On Christmas Day, 1909, halfway to the middle of nowhere in Antarctica, the team broke out creme de menthe and cigars to celebrate the holiday. But by early January, the situation was clear. There was no way the team could reach the pole and get back to camp with the amount of food they had left. Barely 90 miles from the South Pole, Shackleton's team turned back. Now, their goal wasn't 
Cape Royds, where they had departed from, but actually another destination. Hut Point, where the Nimrod, their ship, was waiting for them. They had until March 1st to meet that ship. After that, the Nimrod would leave without them, needing to sail north to escape the encroaching southern hemisphere winter. Shackleton cut food rations, because the trip was now taking far longer than anyone had ever imagined. The team moved as quickly as they could, but hunger and exhaustion were constant companions. At one point, Shackleton made Frank Wilde, one of the only men who also had traveled with Shackleton on Scott's expedition years before, eat his biscuit ration. As the man later said, by God I shall never forget, thousands of pounds would not have bought that one biscuit. Supplies were dangerously dwindling, but the one saving grace for Shackleton's team was the several supply depots along the way. Last-ditch resources that had been pre-stocked, anticipating the team's return. The contents of one depot were listed as the following. Carlsbad plums, eggs, cakes, plum pudding, gingerbread, and crystallized fruit. Not my choice of life-saving rations, but then again, who am I to judge? With only days before the Nimrod was due to depart, Shackleton and Frank Wilde made a last-ditch solo march for the meeting place. They were able to catch the ship, convince it to wait until the rest of the team caught up, and then they all sailed due north towards warmer climes. Now, by this point, the Nimrod expedition may sound like a bit of a failure. After all, they didn't reach the South Pole. But the attitude of the British public in 1909 was, if anything, endlessly forgiving. Because, in truth, Shackleton and his team had made it the furthest south of anyone to date, a mere 90 miles from the Pole. And in the mind of England, it was still to be considered a victory. Shackleton was knighted on his return to England, and the publicity surrounding his Nimrod expedition would fuel his next trip to Antarctica, the famous Endurance Expedition in 1914. And well, we already know how that one turned out. But before we leave Shackleton, there is still one more food history fact to be explored. Now, I've already gone through Shackleton's food packing list for the Nimrod trip, and how the team camped at Cape Royds for almost a year before they made their start for the pole. Now, originally, before things had taken a turn for the worst, the plan for the Nimrod expedition had been to return to Cape Royds. Things, of course, didn't turn out that way, and Cape Royds was essentially left to the elements. Now, no surprise here, but ice and snow preserve things remarkably well, which means even though the team didn't end up returning to the hut, things at Cape Royds stayed frozen in time, preserved by Antarctica's chilly temperatures. Two years later, when a member of another Antarctic expedition returned to the hut, he apparently retrieved a tin of butter, tins of jam, a plum pudding, and gingerbread biscuits. What is it with all the plum pudding and gingerbread on this trip? All of which he described as fresh and perfectly edible. Decades later, Shackleton's hut at Cape Royds was declared a historic site, which meant it was to be left untouched 
for all time. But as it turned out, almost 100 years later in the early 21st century, Shackleton's hut revealed another item from Shackleton's trip that somehow didn't make it onto the official food packing list. In order to sustain his crew, he pre-ordered 25 cases of uh, McKinley's rare old Highland malt whiskey uh, to take with him on the journey. And uh, and they were, they were gone a year and a half in total. And I think that was probably a lot longer than they planned to be. Mm-hmm. And what, maybe not quite 20 men. But uh, at their hut at base camp, uh, someone possibly illicitly, I think people are trying have tried to try to weave more intrigue into this story than it than it really needs. But uh, it's been suggested someone was trying to ferret ferret this stuff away, someone who had maybe a, a, a hoarding problem. But it might have just been buried there so it would stay safe for when they came back. But three cases, and then as events turned out kind of dire and tense, they didn't end uh, end up digging them out. And then about 100 years later, almost exactly, I think, in 2007, an expedition went and dug these things out and pulled out one case of which 11 of the bottles were were intact. And so they took two of the bottles back with them to the civilized world for analysis. That's our friend, Steve Castellano, who is about to lead us on the most historical whiskey tasting I had ever experienced. Along with Mike and our friends Lynn and Greg, we were about to try a whiskey inspired by bottles buried for almost a century in Antarctica ice. You see, above and beyond Shackleton's apparent taste for gingerbread and plum pudding, he also apparently had a thing for whiskey. Which, hey, is certainly one way of keeping you warm in sub-zero temperatures. Shackleton must have intended to open these whiskey bottles on their triumphant return to Cape Royds from the South Pole. However, fate being what it was, the bottles remained buried in the snow and ice for almost 100 years before they were discovered by folks who had taken charge of the now historic Shackleton Hut. And just like when you discover Roman wine at the bottom of the Mediterranean or thousand-year-old cheese hidden in an Irish bog, humans have an unnerving desire to try historical food. And so it was with Shackleton's whiskey. I mean, assuming this stuff is as a fairly accurate reproduction, it's uh, cask strength at 46%. Mm. So it uh, take, take, a lot to, take a lot to freeze. Now, before you think that the feast has a much larger whiskey budget than we claim, no, the whiskey we were trying at this tasting wasn't the actual whiskey from Shackleton's day, but a bottle inspired by it. But how exactly do you mimic the flavors of a 100-year-old whiskey, particularly one that's been buried in the ice for that long? Both scientific and and just among the noses of of the great whiskey experts, and and they did a bit of uh, historical research. The brand still existed, but hadn't been producing scotch, but they knew enough about them uh, to start putting together a recreation that was then reissued 
But among the interesting things they discovered while they were doing this analysis, they figured out what kind of barrels, American white oak, and down to the origin of the peat that was used to smoke the barley, which which apparently is from the Orkneys. Yeah. Long way, long way to go for peat, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. I don't remember where I heard about this, but but it was kind of big no- big news when they when they dug it up. My interest was already peat, the idea of figuring out what people who were drinking whiskey were tasting a hundred years ago or one hundred twenty years ago, and this, this seems like a uh, as as close to reproduction as we can get. And I thought they were just doing the one run. But as it turns out, I think they've done at least two uh, uh, production runs since. So they're not planning on stopping production, which means when this bottle runs out, there may be more. Which means you might be able to buy your own bottle of Shackleton whiskey even today. Now, you might be wondering, what happened to the rest of the original bottles that remained from Shackleton's early 20th century hoard? Well, they went back to the ice. Yes, they were shipped back to Cape Royds to return to the historic Shackleton hut, to wait another hundred years or more before some other Scotch lovers got curious. Anyway, we ended our own whiskey tasting in a manner that seemed only appropriate with a toast to the man himself, Shackleton. Cheers. 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 The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Whiskey notes and canine care provided by Mike Port. A huge thank you to Steve Castellano for providing the inspiration for this episode, and of course, a lovely taste of Shackleton whiskey. Thanks as well to Lynn Provencher and Greg de Saint-Maurice. As always, we'll put up links to the sources we used for the episode on our website at thefeastpodcast.org, including a link to Shackleton's book, The Heart of the Antarctic. We'll also put some images up of Shackleton's whiskey and, of course, the man himself on our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at feast underscore podcast. We'll also include a great image of that 1907 ad we found for Plasmon, which unfortunately can no longer be found in stores. That's all for us this week. We'll be back next week with another meal that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.